Throw this down for a catch. Uh, I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. Welcome to the Church in a Brewery podcast. This is the Chosen Retrospective Series, hosted by Nathan. Will you do us the honor, Rabbi? If that's where you keep the white sardines. Jason. Teacher, you have moved us all. John. Looks like we're not the only ones taxing the people. And Nick. It's the biggest pile of dung in all Capernaum. <laughs> Spoiler alert, we are literally gonna spoil everything. So make sure you've actually watched this episode before listening to this podcast. I'm on official business. Only Roman business is official business. Today we are discussing The Chosen, season one, episode seven, directed by Dallas Jenkins. So we are four guys coming together from different backgrounds, some from a religious perspective, some from a non-religious perspective. Makes a really fun discussion. The purpose of this discussion isn't so much to figure out doctrine or anything like that. It's more to just come together and just have open sharing. You know, what do you think about this? That type of thing. So it might help you learn about what people around you think about faith and theology and stuff. And it's just kind of cool to hear some different perspectives. So before we dive into this episode, this is sponsored by Church in a Brewery. So it's only appropriate that we talk about what kind of beer we're drinking tonight. That's kind of our icebreaker. So what do you guys got? Night well, Visions Vanilla Latte. Night Visions. Mm. Yep, it's an imperial stout with coffee, vanilla beans, and lactose. Ooh. Going hard tonight. Right up my alley, <laughs> man. That sounds tasty. <laughs> what do you got, Bernie? Well, I went back to whiskey, so uh, I've got some old granddad 114. Back <laughs> of potatoes. In his defense, <laughs> they do serve whiskey at breweries, so. Mm. <laughs> well, this is a strawberry milkshake IPA of my own making that I will be serving at a festival tomorrow evening. So, awesome. Mm. Alongside a barrel-aged maple fudge Russian Imperial Stout. Oh. Also of my own making. So We get samples of that, right? Yeah, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta come up here first. Hey, you can mail it to us. <laughs> it's not at work. I think I told you guys last week that Imperial Stouts, that's like the high bar for me. I love those. I didn't get an Imperial Stout this week, but you got something close. It's the Poet, the New Holland... Mm. American Oatmeal Stout. New Holland makes one of my other favorites, Dragon's Milk and Dragon's Milk White Stout. Oh, it's amazing. So I picked this up. I've actually driven right by them on my way to Michigan before. It's delicious. I like it. And again, um, if anybody who has a brewery out there is watching our podcast and wants us to sample their stuff, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not beyond giving you a plug for free beer. <laughs> you don't yes. plug the heck out of it. <laughs> Free promotion. If you send me a shirt, I'll stand up and wear it. Whatever you want. <laughs> I'll wear only the shirt. How about that? Yes. Someone email us. Don't. Go to breweryministries.org and email us about free beer and shirts. Yeah, I actually forgot to introduce ourselves. So let's do that now. I'm Nathan. Oh, Jason's frozen. Well, while we're waiting on Jason, I'm John. <laughs> I'm Nick. 
<laughs> and that guy that is frozen, the cardboard cutout, that's Jason. There you are. There you are. Introduce yourself, Jason. I think my internet's going bad. Oh, no. Well, that's Jason. And we are ready to rock on this episode. So I actually watched a behind-the-scenes video. I sent it to you guys. It's called Catholic and Evangelical Discuss John 3. It's on YouTube. And it is actually from The Chosen's YouTube. So they had like a five-minute video where they were talking a little bit about this episode. So I've had this sneaking suspicion that the directors and the writers are actually writing in modern problems about church into these stories and addressing them through the story about Jesus and the disciples. And it just seemed like, wow, this stuff is really relevant. Seems like they're bringing up some controversial church issues like tithing and what people think about it and, and, hypocrites, things like that. Well, after I watched this video, our suspicion was correct. They are really trying to address these things, which I think is cool because it's coming from within the church. They're recognizing some of the same things people outside the church see as problems, and they're kind of trying to do something positive about that in the show. A couple things that stuck out to me. One, they said one of the largest unreached people groups we think of it as like people overseas on an island or something, right? You know, you send a missionary to tell people about the Bible and stuff. He said it's nominal Christians. So I assume that means people who are Christians in name only. And he kind of went on to elaborate that the biggest threat to Christianity is Christians themselves. It's Christians who think they're Christians, but they're really not because they don't really understand what it is Jesus was trying to teach them. And I bring that up because we could see it in the show as a theme, but we've also kind of brought up some of those issues. We've spotted them in the show, and we've spotted them in real life. So it makes the show really relevant. What do you guys think about what they mentioned there? I kind of agree with that. I mean, I think I know what's said before the series does a good job at kind of highlighting those things. I kind of wonder what some of my diehard, a little more conservative friends would feel when they kind of go and Mm-hmm. I do think sometimes it's not what you call nominal Christians. That's an interesting question. I mean, you got a lot of people, I think, that go to church every Sunday, do the church events, they do this. But I think that there's so far Christianity, like you guys actually read the scripture, and actually a lot of them have not read the scripture. I mean, you got the non-religious guy who's actually looking stuff up. And I'm thinking, why aren't they looking stuff up? And so I think it's almost, they turn into a social club more than they have a spiritual journey. Yeah, that makes sense. That was a good way to describe it. A social club. I mean, it, admittedly, you can ask my wife about this. I just thought, you know, if you just thought Jesus was real, that made you a Christian. I didn't know, you know, being a Christian meant like you actually believe that Christ, you know, died on the cross and rose from the grave and the, the fundamental aspect of the whole religion. So, you know, you, you say the biggest enemy to the enemy, the biggest like uh, obstacle is the nominal Christians. I, I believe it. You know, there's probably an overwhelming number of people that just, you know, like you said, haven't read the Bible or just go to church and go through the motions when, you know, in essence, there's a lot to it. Or, you know, to take it a step further, get baptized because, well, it's what my parents told me to do or it's what my wife or my husband wanted me to do. For me, that that's, I will never consent to doing that unless I am 100% all in. It's just not something I believe you do lightly. And, and that, unfortunately, I don't think is shared by a lot of people. You know, like you said, the nominal Christians. Well, I was going to say, I have a good deal of respect for that. You don't want to do it unless you're all in. I really think there's a lot of virtue to that. 
So do you think of it to throw a question out there? I mean, do you think that um, these people want this a Christian idol so bad that they're actually a little bit naive and easily persuade? I always look at it. Politics is kind of itself into religion where you have to be this, 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 and this to be a Christian. And they're actually going to adhere to it because they want that Christian title so bad. And do you think that's the case with some of these nominal Christians? Boy, I don't know. I think that's probably part of it. I think there's a lot of factors. I mean, like you've said before, one of them is that in some ways, a certain sect of modern Christianity has become more of a political party, but you don't actually see them showing the compassion of Jesus necessarily. So it's like, I think today, if someone's trying to figure out if they want to be a Christian or not, they might have some trouble just parsing out what it even is, because they've got these examples that aren't real good. I'd almost rather give them a DVD of the show and be like, here, watch this, than I would for them to go ask someone else. Or even with a pastor, you're not sure what line of thinking they're coming from. Because, you know, we've seen some real fire and brimstone, like, you're going to go to hell if you don't do this type of thing. Fear, maybe that's not the best motivation. And then you see some other people who do really reflect what it seems like Jesus is teaching. So you either have to find one of those people to, like, ask about this or go to the source. There's just so many confusing examples. That's why I like that the show is bringing up all the different groups and showing, like, the broken theology of the Pharisees. I mean, you really can't dive into this story without addressing that. I think for me, it it adds depth to characters that are just kind of faceless in my mind, where, you know, early in the series, I think episode one, I was harping on, like, I was struggling just trying to, like, separate the show from scripture. And what I've noticed, and it kind of feeds into that nominal Christian idea is that while we're I'm going through and I'm prepping for these discussions with you guys, you know, I'm I'm focused on the current theme of the scene. But then if I go back and rewatch the episode, I'm picking up on all these little intricacies and relationships and how two of characters may be dealing or confronted with a similar issue and they deal with it in totally different ways. Things that I don't pick up the first watch through. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting and it, it's it's well done. It's end of the day, it's very well done for them to be able to work those messages in, but not have it be so overt that it takes over the storyline. A general observation there on John. I noticed the first season of the first show were like really stuck on the script. Touching this accurate stop sure I'm accurate. I noticed as it progressed through he started um thinking a little more critical about it. So I just kinda of have that progression. I think it's kinda of cool. It, it was hard to uh to make that switch <laughs> so the alcohol yeah. finally started kicking in <laughs> right <laughs> i think he was on a good job of it though i mean we didn't know what we were in for at first like we didn't know how we're supposed to take the show or anything but i think we've kind of figured out what it is now and it is remarkably deep theologically while adding to the story to flesh out context too in the last episode i kind of mentioned a couple times about Simon and the other disciples didn't really seem like they wanted to help the paralyzed man get any closer to hear Jesus and some things like that. They were real hesitant to help people. They want to beat up Matthew. They're a good example almost of that nominal Christian subject that we're talking about because they're brand new. So they like don't know what they're doing yet. And 
they clearly don't reflect what we know Jesus is doing at this point. But it also makes sense because they're at the beginning of their journey, you know? That makes sense. I mean, what do you expect from somebody who's brand new to, to Jesus? I think the perplexing thing maybe in the church is you've got people who are 10 years, 20 years, 30 years in, who are still in that position. And I don't really know what the answer to that is. I'm just glad the show is doing what it's doing, and I'm glad it exists. Isn't that a modern Absolutely. example of modern-day churches, though? I mean, yeah. if you look and use the example of Simon, we want to help our church family or our people in the Salsa Club. We'll, we'll help them. Anybody else in need, this, we're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a perfect example of what you see today in, in the church now. Many yeah. other. I've mm-hmm. seen that from the inside before. And it, it is interesting. I feel bad for churches in a way, too. If the whole culture has kind of gotten a little bit off track, then it's harder to have good, healthy churches as examples. And think about the major examples we have. Like, uh, I can think of some positive ones, but I can also think of some that we've mentioned here before, famous pastors who are like way off track. (laughs) And there's going to be some great lines in this episode that I think are referring to those, some of those big preachers, you know. Do you guys want to dive into this episode now? Let's do it. Absolutely. Awesome. I found the beginning of this episode really interesting. But first, I'm going to read you the IMDb plot, which is like basically one sentence again. Here it is. Plot summary for this episode. As Matthew struggles to make logical sense of the miracles he has witnessed, Nicodemus finally meets with Jesus in secret. So obviously, there's a lot left out, especially this opening scene. We see Joshua and Moses. Yeah. And Moses seems to be fashioning a bronze snake. Did you guys know what was going on here? Was this confusing? Because this is a fairly obscure Old Testament story. I had had no idea. Go back. I I had to Google that. I'll be honest with you. I didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. It it rang a bell, but I was like, I don't exactly remember all the details of this. (laughs) Yeah. Here's the deal. If you guys didn't know it, I sure as hell didn't know it. So... You know, you got to give some props to the writers of this, though. I mean, these guys are really, um, I mean, even for being a non-religious person, I think I'm pretty versed in the scripture. And some of this stuff I have to go back and, and look up. I'm thinking some of these guys that are helping write this, they know their stuff. I mean, they, they got some scholars or somebody else mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, I've heard they've got a Jewish scholar, a Catholic scholar. Like they've got, they've got like a committee that they consult, which yep. I really like. I've been getting more into the scholarly angle of things lately. And I am realizing as I watch the show, like, wow, they're, <laughs> they are really going in, in deep to the scholarly realm here, which is cool because like it gives it replay value. You can watch it later and, and go even deeper after you figured out more what they're talking about. So, okay. So Nick, were you able I think, to do that on purpose? Yeah, I think so too. I was going to ask you, Nick, did you figure out what this was about? Like, did you look anything up or? So admittedly, no, because I, I watched the episode later. But so I, I saw Moses and I, I've heard the story about Moses saying to look upon the bronze snake and you'll be healed. So I, I've heard that reference. I didn't know the story, but unfortunately, I, I did not get the opportunity to look it up. But, you know, I, as we see later in the episode, it, it, it is kind of addressed again. So, mm-hmm. yeah. What did you guys find? Did you find anything on this? I didn't necessarily, you know, look for other references. I just was trying to find where it was scripturally <laughs> referenced to, to read it. And I thought they did a good job with it. And 
again, trying to portray those complex human interactions that we really don't get a lot of context for in scripture. So, yeah. Yeah. Jason's got an air conditioner guy working on his air conditioner at his house. So he'll be back. I found this scene, I found it, like I said, confusing at first. It did make sense to me when it comes back later in the episode. But at first I was having trouble figuring out what is the connection between the snake and Jesus? And I eventually figured it out. So apparently in the ancient world, like an ancient person would see a snake as a symbol of life, but also of rebirth because a snake sheds its skin, right? So that's why like in Mesopotamia, even in other cultures, not even Jewish cultures necessarily, this was a symbol of rebirth. I didn't even remember that Jesus quotes that in John chapter three. And I still was hazy on it, on the details until I did some research. I listened to Naked Bible podcast number 103. It's with Dr. Michael Heiser. And he talked about the background of that and why they would make a snake statue. So I guess the Israelites come out of Egypt and, you know, they're coming out of a culture where there's lots of other gods and stuff that the Egyptians worshiped and stuff. So they're polytheistic. They're converting to monotheism. You know, they've, they've decided, okay, God, Yahweh is the God over all these other gods. So he's the, the big, the real God. So they come out of Egypt and they start complaining because they don't like the food. They're in the wilderness. They decide, hey, we were better off when we were slaves in Egypt making bricks and eating whatever it is they ate. They start complaining. They want to go back under that lifestyle. So God's ticked. So he sends a bunch of snakes to bite them and, and they're dying. So then God told Moses, build this snake serpent statue, which seems confusing because the show says that's a symbol of pagan religion, right? So here's the thing I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that was really identified as a pagan thing at the time or if the character Joshua in the show is asking those questions because that's what the modern viewer of this episode is going to ask. So he may have been having that debate with Moses for our benefit because if God told Moses to make this snake statue and this is God's solution, they might not actually see the bronze serpent as another God. So it's not necessarily considered an idol. They're still going through God's solution to this problem. Maybe they're a little scared because of the golden calf incident. I don't know. No, actually, this year, I thought I found incredibly interesting about the snake. I actually went back and I Googled it. I think I told you, Nathan, was a couple months ago, I watched this show about people that don't use modern medicine because they say it's witchcraft and all this stuff. Yeah. And one of the things they use is serpent, which is the symbol of, look at the religious, or the symbol of medicine is actually two serpents together. Also, if you look at pharmacies, the same. And so for some reason, that was just kind of interesting if, I know that comes from the ancient Greeks, if this... Just that comparison there, because if you look at the snake, when I Googled it, it said it wasn't taking their pain away, but it was keeping them from dying. To me, that's like some kind of... Oh. And so I'm thinking, that looks like it's medicine to me or it's some kind of a healing factor. You said life. I thought the <laughs> resemblance was just interesting to me when you look at the modern day yeah. medicine. It was just- that's a great point. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I heard that it was associated with healing too. I forgot yeah, about I that. The- yeah. 
I don't know. You know, sometimes we do these things. We have these symbols that we don't even know were actually rooted, you know, thousands of years ago. Then we start and you see them pop up again, different religions, different cultures, and they all pretty much mean the same thing. I was just kind of thinking of this one here. Just that's how my brain works. <laughs> I actually paused it and actually went back and looked up the whole snake thing, and I was like, "Wow, okay, that's a snake." I was like. I didn't know that symbol for modern medicine was a snake. Yeah. Two snakes intertwined together on a staff. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't know that. Did you think that this was like a crazy story? I mean, would you have been like Joshua? Like, what are you doing, man? I mean, it, I guess you got to put it in context too. And Moses brings up some really good points in terms of I've learned not to question him. Like, they've been led out of Egypt, saw the Red Sea get parted, had a pillar of fire in front of them leading their way been supplied with food every day since they've left and it's like what more do you need to see (laughs) (laughs) like those are some pretty big things that you would think would stick with you and then you know i I don't know i guess it's somewhat human nature to to have those complaints like we're never satisfied or, or maybe it's just something i struggle with but it's one of those things where we're always wanting more. We always want better, no matter how fast we are, how well we're doing in our careers. We always want more success. That's striving. But at the same time, it, considering all, all those events that they've witnessed leading up to this and then to complain, it's just kind of like, ooh, that was a bad move. <laughs> I slide in something creepy. Yeah. So, so last night for bedtime, we read our little one, if you give a mouse a cookie. Well, there must be snakes in there. Oh my God, Snyder! It's the epitome <laughs> of the, it's the epitome of never satisfied. Oh, if you give him a cookie, he'll want milk. If you want milk, it, it's and the whole book is the the mouse always wants something more. Yeah, and it ends up coming full circle. He wants a cookie at the end of the book. <laughs> I feel yeah. that even within myself, and I'm like, uh, I don't like being human. What you think, even with religious people? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of harsh on them sometimes. I mean. Anytime something good happens, I mean, a friend of mine actually, he got his PhD and he wrote a dissertation. First thing he did was, thank you, Jesus, or thank you, God. I'm like, I mean, thank you. You don't want to work for years and did all this hard work. Why don't you thank yourself for that? And so they always want the good stuff. They always want to give benefit to God. But when bad things happen, him included, you know, he doesn't really, like, damn, how come God ain't looking out for me? Or God ain't, what do I do to piss God off? I mean, or he'll even say, this is the devil. The devil's doing something. I find it interesting that good stuff always want to give it to God, but bad stuff not necessarily. When you look at some of the scriptures and even some of this, is there's lessons in the bad stuff. How would we be able to gauge the good things if we didn't have bad? I mean, yeah, that's a good point. I could see a couple in my head, a couple different camps of theology there, you know? I mean, being a Christian, sometimes I fall in the camp of because earth is sort of distanced from God, like he, he lets us make choices and stuff the result of not being directly where God is, as things in this world are constantly breaking down. So what that means to me is not everything that is bad is necessarily Satan. It's just, it could just be a result of this is what it's like to be on this planet and it's deteriorating. Um, Other people, like you said, see all bad things as as Satan and all good things as God. I mean, yeah, I, I think there's different views on that that is interesting don't you think the story with the snake is also interesting because if you look at uh so i googled it the whole fairy serpent thing 
whole intention of those serpents was to punish them. And even when he had the brass snake came out, you know, healed them. They didn't die, but they still felt the pain. So God mm-hmm. intentionally wanted to hurt these people. So he was yeah. punishing them. I thought that was. That's a story that, as a when I was younger, that, that didn't sit very well with me. It is hard. I don't know if there's a real good way to reconcile it. That Naked Bible podcast episode I was listening to on it, he's a Bible scholar, so he's coming more from that angle. But he's saying, if you believe that we're caught up in the middle of a spiritual war between good and evil, then when the Israelites come out of Egypt, they have pledged their allegiance to Yahweh, but there were these other gods over Egypt who were lesser, like smaller spirits, right? So when people decide they want to go back to Egypt, they're saying they don't want to be loyal to God anymore. They want to go back under those spirits in Egypt. So it's kind of like a breach of loyalty or they're abandoning God. So if there's this other war going on in the spiritual realm, then God's ticked about that because they're like jumping ship and going back to the enemy. That brings an interesting possible dimension to this story. Does that make God kind of appear to be a jealous God? I mean, what the very first commandment, I'm, I'm the only God, you only worship me. So he's kind of a little bit jealous. Yeah, right from the get-go. yeah, I think so. Does this story disturb you guys? Are you guys uncomfortable with the story? <laughs> I'm not. Uh, and part of that to me too is looking at it in terms of God of the Old Testament versus what Jesus brought that kind of was a change of pace, uh, a different tone, if you will. Because Old Testament God, there's some stuff there that it is pretty, you, you look at it and you're like, oh, that's kind of crazy. But, you know, there's a reason for it. And I kind of look at it as, you know, the relationship between a father and a son. If I'm friends with the son, it's probably going to be a lot different than friends with the father, even though they're all one family. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you look at it like we're just ants, then... I guess that changes things. It, it depends on what we are, you know? It's true. I always kind of got this thought, you know, talk about some of these miracles. And if you look at history, I mean, many Egyptians, I mean, they're performing these magic or miracles, whatever you want to call it. I mean, is it easy for the people at that time frame to get used to some of these magic tricks? I mean, we watch David Copperfield and stuff, and we see these things. I'm thinking that's big. There's some kind of a trick there. Are they mm-hmm. thinking about it that way? I mean, perhaps if you're fooled, perhaps if this guy that's, you know, crippled is actually can walk. He just shows up like, oh, look, I can walk. I mean, the people don't know that. I mean, is it, I'm thinking primitive thoughts at that time frame. So maybe that's why people sometimes it's harder to accept mm-hmm. some of the miracles. There's other things kind of going on. It is. That makes sense. Yeah, it is something that it begs investigation, you know, it's hard. I actually liked what the story did here in this episode because they say, you know, the people will say it's a cruel joke. And you've got Joshua as sort of our access point, because he's looking at the serpent thing like it's ridiculous. The reason I was asking you guys how you felt about this story was because I think the writers knew that this is a tough story to buy into or something. And so they address that through the character of Joshua, which I thought was really cool. It's like, we all know this is an out there story. So let's just make light of it. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I thought this one was a 37 minutes. It was one of the smallest ones we've seen. Yeah, but I thought by. it was a little bit, a lot of information to analyze in this one. And I thought some of the scenes, like when Jesus and Nicodemus were talked, I thought that was a little bit emotional. 
I, I thought this too. scene was probably just a lot going on in that small amount of time. But it was mm-hmm. this one was pretty good, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, it was real good. Let's move into the next scene. Speaking of, you know, a little bit of emotional, the first time that I felt a little bit of something emotional in myself in this episode was when Gaia shows up to escort Matthew. And the reason is we quickly find out Gaius doesn't have to be there. And it's like, oh, this guy who seems kind of like he hates Matthew almost. Why is he there? You know, like, does he secretly like Matthew or is he trying to figure out what's going on? What do you guys think? I think as as the episode goes on, it there's a, a certain level of endearment that's in bonding that's taken place between the two. Plus, I think Gaius is intelligent enough to understand that the reason why he got to where he's at is because of, of Matthew. Whether or not he'll admit it, Matthew took care of him. <laughs> Gave him that promotion, basically. So I think I agree with Purdy there. I think uh, they spend so much time together. They're definitely, there's a relationship there. I mean, you see that when, I guess it's towards the end of the episode, when Matthew's taking the taxes or whatever, and he's like, oh, did you see the, the foot races or whatever? And he's like, no. He's like, okay, did you? Da, da, da. And he's like, no. It's like, well, what did you do? And it, it, but the point is, like, they, they were going back and forth. The other thing to keep in mind is, I think if Matthew were to step out of line with the way that that structure is organized with with uh, the Roman, if Matthew does something wrong, they're going to come down on him. So he's got to not only like he's got a friend he's developed here, but like he's got this guy hooked to his hip. And if he does wrong, I mean, he's going down too. Mm-hmm. So just, I don't know, kind of something to think about. I, I kind of agree with both of you guys. I think probably it's been so much time together they've you know developed this relationship and i think in the case of gaius matthew's not roman so he can kind of let his guard down a little bit and they have this i mean just like nick said they're talking about the, the foot races gaius calls him a fool at one time but then in the flip side says you know you've done well for yourself and so he's kind of even when he leaves to go with jesus he's like you don't want to do that matthew you, you got a good thing going but then on the flip side matthew actually i think of all the romans has the conversation with him as well he makes the reference, what if you're the only Roman, what would you do? He goes, I changed my clothes. And so they kind of have this kind of, yes, Gaius is Roman. Yes, he's ultimately in charge, but there's a friendship there. There was a relationship mm-hmm. there. They've kind of, in a way, kind of looking out, at least Gaius looking out for him to some, and whether it's a necessity of needing a friend or wherever it might be. Yeah, there's like a almost a tense friendship there, or it's in development or something. I think that's cool. Part of their interactions, too, kind of re- reminded me of, like, water cooler banter in an office. Oh, yeah. Where it's like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Like, <laughs> I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you guys have, I mean, I've made a lot of good friends just at work. I mean, I kind of, yeah, and I think this kind of relationship, there's kind of the same thing. I mean, I didn't necessarily like individuals. I mean, I've worked with individuals I really didn't care for. And you get, you know, a year or two into it, and we're having a beer together once every once in a while. So, I mean, it's, you've learned mm-hmm. to kind of accept each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. What about this next scene? It's Nicodemus and his wife, and they are talking about whether or not they're going to stay. I guess Nicodemus has, what, a a fifth grandson that's been born, and he doesn't want to go back. So this is an interesting scene. What do you think about this? First off, I mean, you don't want to do your fifth circumcision. What what in the world? Come on. (laughs) Who doesn't want to do their fifth circumcision? I know six is the magic number, but you got to get to five to get to six. Come on. But no, oh, that's it, great. if you think about it, though, I think in reference to like my parents and, and my nieces and nephews, like they all they want to do is see their nieces and nephews, see their kids and be around them. So, you know, I, I 
you know, empathize with Nicodemus's wife. On the other side, you know, Nicodemus is struggling with all this, and then you know she almost kind of cast it aside. She's like, "I'm done with this place. I want to get back to my kids. I want to get back to my 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 grandkids." You know, what are people going to think that you're staying in Capernaum to continue your studying? Like, what in the world? And, you know, this also plays into, we talked about uh, women's roles at that point in time. I, I was there when, when uh, oh, what's his name? Comes busting in. Um, Quintus. I got it. Quintus, yeah. When yeah. Quintus came busting in, he caught me off guard. I was like, I thought that was the moment Nicodemus was going to, like, give the old backhand. But I was like, nope, nope, nope. The Romans what? coming in. One of the things I, I thought was kind of interesting that this scene kind of portrays a little bit was the impact that a spouse can have on your life in terms of decisions that you make, being a good partner, being supportive. If you contrast Nicodemus's wife with Simon's wife, for example, she's just been over the moon, excited, thrilled, knows it's going to be hard, but super supportive of him. And not to say that Nicodemus's wife, uh, what's her name, Zahora, that she hasn't been supportive. But in this scene in particular, doesn't she say something to the effect of, uh, I love our life, I don't want it to change? Kind of like, she's not supportive of him pursuing what he thinks is important as much as she is being comfortable or ensuring stability for herself. And I'm not saying that that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's, it's a real thing. But I, I thought it was an interesting contrast between the two spouses and what resulted and kind of the direction that they take from that. Mm -hmm. I think I saw another podcast and it was talking a little bit about this series does a really good job at both women. It comes to some of the stuff. When you look at a lot of religious stuff, does it? They kind of just mediate women's role. I mean, you really don't hear about women at all other than Mary. And so I think in this scene here, I mean, it's like John said, we see women are actually strong women. They talk to their husbands, they put some input, they either push them or try to give them the right direction. Also notice, if you notice the times, I mean, she's real vocal when it's just her and Nicodemus in there. She's, as soon as Gaius comes in, or not Gaius, Prefect, what's his name again? Quintus. Quintus. Yeah. Comes in, she kind of almost falls into that typical women should be seen but not heard kind of role. She kind of steps back. Yeah, and she puts her thing on. Yeah, she puts her thing on. She falls into the what society expects women to be. As soon as Quintus leaves, that she just has that regular conversation again with Nicodemus. And so I really thought about this. We talked about this in other podcasts. And I almost think, I think that, you know, women might have had that behind the scenes role. I mean, you know, sometimes, I mean, I was married one time. <laughs> I mean, it was noticed that sometimes women, so in today's society, tend to do that. You know, sometimes they have a lot to say, but you're dealing with things, a man is kind of doing the talking, but he has a lot of input from the female or from the wife. He might be the driving force that you see up front, but he's actually not the driving force that's being pushed by the woman on the backside. It kind of goes with, you know, well, all great men have a great woman pushing them. Maybe there. So I think this, I think that's intentional, the role of women in this series, at least strong women. Yeah, I've kind of come around to maybe some of this did happen back then, like you said, behind closed doors, because it does right. make sense. I think, it, John, it's interesting that you brought up comparing him to Simon and his wife, because maybe we're supposed to contrast these two couples. I took it with Nicodemus, like in the first episode, when he asked questions, she basically chastises him. She's like, you don't have questions, you have answers. I always think this, there's a quote by Epicurus, and it says, it is impossible for a man to learn that which he thinks he already knows. And so 
Nicodemus, he knows that he doesn't know something, but his wife is like, no, you have answers. Like, don't question anything. I think that she was unapproachable at this point on this journey, and he can't tell her what he's really thinking. From what we see in this scene, in this episode, I took it that he has not told her much of what he's thinking about, or she might maybe understand or, or at least know why he doesn't want to go see his fifth grandson be born. You know, otherwise, they'd at least be talking about the issue at hand. And she's like, what, you're sympathetic to this preacher? And I'm thinking, yeah, he hasn't shared anything with her since that first episode, because he mm -hmm. was like, she's not going to hear it. So I'm just going to do this in secret. So I think that's part of the tension here. Well, and Isn't it, I think it's good that she actually you know, picks that up that he's sympathetic to that pre drum. I mean, just in that conversation, mm -hmm. it's a little inside of what he's thinking because, I mean, if you just to be honest, Nicodemus was protecting Jesus from, you know, from Quintus. He was oh, kind yeah. of being shady yeah. about it. And so he was, I played both sides a little bit. Yeah, I'll talk to him. I'll figure this out. You know, it's, we all got the same. And so it's also, I think, in this one here, I think the fact that Quintus is actually coming down and actually talking to Nicodemus' house. He just has some concern himself. He's kind of got some stress and he's kind of, this is a little bit different than the ordinary. You know, this is something maybe I need to actually investigate a little bit further. I'm going to go talk to Nicodemus myself at his house. But mm -hmm. I think it, Quintus, it, Quintus is concerned. Yeah. It may have become personal for him too, because he brings up the fact that, you know, Herod's envoy was delayed because of Jesus's interactions and drawing the crowd, which was, you know, highly embarrassing for him. So I, I think there may be a personal element to it as well, more more so than like a threat. As as long as he's being able to keep order and collecting money, I, I think he's pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a good point because we've already made it clear that Quintus is very ambitious. He wants to move up, and so I think that's a good point there, John. I loved that Quintus comes in and he goes, "Wow, we really must discuss the people's tithing." So yeah. you know how we started <laughs> off this episode talking about some of those things with modern church. It is a criticism of my generation. I see memes on Facebook all the time about megachurch pastors and tithing is a scam, and they want to take away churches' nonprofit certificates because they see them as a business and all this thing. Well, the writers from this church know that, and they wrote it into this episode to address it, but kind of as a joke, and I got a big laugh out of it. <laughs> I mean, it's true. Look at look at how well Nicodemus lives. Look at what mm -hmm. he's got. When my wife and I first started talking about going to church, I told you my first day was there were a big old tithing push. I was yeah. like, what the hell? But and then you know, talking to Liz about it, my wife, she's like, well, you know, was it you're supposed to give ten percent of your? Is that is that right? Ten percent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the first traditional off, teaching. Yeah, traditionally, who came up with that percentage? How about that? Traditionally, give ten percent of your own money, but. Uh, I don't know. Th to be fair, back in the day, I don't know how pastors, preachers, wh whatever you may call them, made money. I I don't know how they make money today. I don't think all of them sit on Bitcoin miners, but I, I, I don't know. I, I get it, but tithing's a big thing for me. I, it bothers me a whole lot. So back in Moses's day, they had Levitical priests, right? And they existed off of people's tithes. So I, that's the origin. I think Deuteronomy 17 talks about the early tithe, but I do have questions about how it's taught today for a number of reasons, which is a rabbit trail. But one of the big reasons is in Deuteronomy 17, the tithe is food. 
and they, they tell you to consume your tithe, eat it as a celebration of what God provided for years one and two and every third year, give it all away. So I do have some, I, I have some holes in my understanding of what the tithe is. And I discovered that verse and thought, I've never seen this before. It's one of the first tithing verses. So I showed it to some pastors and I asked them what it meant. And they go, I don't know. <laughs> and then I said, well, what is the tithe? I mean, this says, if you can't carry your tithe to the temple, sell it and spend the money on whatever you want, including fine wine. And so I, I asked them, what does, what does this mean? And they go, I don't know. And they just reiterated, everybody needs to give 10%. I thought, nah, there, there's something going on here. It's a great principle to give 10% of your money to the church. That's a good principle. But the way it's taught, I mean, you've got to be able to explain to me these origin verses, right? So there is a major controversy around tithing. And I just like that the show brought it up. They don't address it, but it's a funny joke and it made me laugh. We all know there are some questionable methods at times. Dude, if tithing is food, I will tithe the hell out of whatever you need. I will make I will make food every Sunday. I would much rather give you my homemade food or my homemade beer than straight up hand you my cash. Like yeah. I am I'm that stingy. Part of the reason I brought that up is there is precedence for like, you know, ministers living off of donations. So there's, there's precedence for that. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. You just don't want to see people abuse people's money and enslave people into a system where they can't afford it or I don't know. The whole tithing discussion, I think to me, is just incredibly interesting. You know, I think the problem, though, is we see people like Joe Osteen and them that are millionaires and they're just abusing the system. But we don't see sometimes, this is from a non-religious person, some of the smaller churches where I think that, you know, this minister and the church has bills to pay too. Is this guy living a modest salary is he getting paid the same as a teacher or people in his church i mean is he able to feed himself i don't think that people have problems with this minister being able to pay his basic bills and have basic necessities like the rest of us it's just when we see him pulling up the church in one of his you know nine cadillacs that becomes kind of the solution if he pulled up in his minivan we probably wouldn't have that that big of a complaint yeah. or Mm-hmm. Or if he lived in a house that was our neighbor, that was the same as ours, we probably wouldn't have that that complaint. So I mean, sometimes I think yeah. that just goes to the extreme. You know, we yeah. go to we don't want to tie that they look at you know the old scene, which is abusing the system. Or we need to kind of settle somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think you're right. There's there's a happy medium there, and maybe the take away their nonprofits <laughs> certificate. You know, that's kind of one of the extremes, right? That's another rabbit hole. Yeah. I kind of think that when it comes to um, for profit, they're not for profit because they don't pay taxes because they're not for profit, not because it's separation church and state. You get that wrong. Mm, but I do think when you go up, when you go to Fourth of July and you got the church is actually selling fireworks at eight percent cheaper than everybody else because they have non for profit status. I don't know. I don't agree with that. I think oh, they should wow. pay taxes on that yeah. type of stuff as well. That's interesting. I'd, I'd never heard about that before. They do I a lot with Missouri. I know about here in Kansas, but Missouri, they do a lot. The churches will set up. Uh, Mm. So fireworks and do all yeah. these things, they could just cut through the competition because they don't have to pay tax. Huh. Maybe a fundraiser or something. Well, looks like I'm going to become a pastor. <laughs> well, what do you think about <laughs> Quintus? Yeah. He mentions his big concerns. In talking about modern debates that the show addresses again, Quintus says his concern is preachers have a habit of becoming politicians, which I thought, wow, that's really relevant. 
And then he talks about Jesus gathering all those people at the house. But then I don't know if it was Nicodemus. Somebody said normally when a preacher would gather a crowd that big, it was because they were preaching a fiery message. And Jesus was not gathering people with that same tone or with that same type of preaching, which I thought that was really interesting. I mean, healing a paralyzed person is equally as impressive as telling everyone you're going to go straight to hell if you do not pass go, right? But to be fair, even before he did the heal, that healing, his stories were starting to be spread, right? Water into Mm -hmm. wine and things like that. So I think it holds the same level of emotion as, uh, you know, the fire and brimstone message. It's just the other side of the, the card, if you will. It's the good side. So I think that's a testament to, to just how pure and strong the message coming from Jesus was. There's like one scene later, Jesus says, don't worry about which men others think are important. And that, that fits right along with that talk. It's like, don't worry about which, you know, we're talking about maybe pastors who take the wrong approach who are famous or something. He's basically saying, don't worry about them. Like, don't worry about the other ones people are paying attention to. That's really interesting to me. So I was sitting there watching this episode with uh, an unknown female. (laughs) She said, don't tell people I said this. Okay, I won't mention your name. She says, is it just me or is this relationship between Jesus and Mary Magdalene intentionally flirtatious? And I was like, I didn't pick up on that at all. (laughs) Did you guys? No. (laughs) She's a woman. She has intuition. That's actually interesting. Actually. I know the unknown woman you talked about. I got a big idea who it is. But anyways, you know, actually, there's a whole debate whether Mary Magdalene and Jesus were actually a couple. And so if you look at religious scholars, religious scholars can't confirm that they were. But they said if he was or he did have a wife or some girlfriend, it would be Mary Magdalene just based on the scripture and based on the relationship and kind of what was was said there. So I'm not sure that she was famous, but I think there's a relationship that's different than guys. Interesting, yeah. What do you think about Matthew and his father in this scene? He goes to visit his mom and there's a dropped line about his father owning a pawn shop. And I thought, whoa, from the last episode, was he the shady pawn shop owner who the leper was trying to pawn those tools to? I mean, we don't know. It's hazy, but there's a little bit of a link there. Wasn't that pawn shop owner a little younger? I don't know. I don't know, yeah. if, the age, I don't know if the age fits, but maybe they could be like a flashback. Well, no, because same guy. I, I, I didn't look pick alike. Him. Well, yeah, not not only that, but I, I think the age doesn't fit, but valiant effort, though. On shop or a leather shop that Matthew's father had? I thought she said a leather shop. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah, I, I think Jason is. So it's probably not the same. It was a good try. That's what I said. It's valiant effort. I was like, this universe is a little too interconnected now. <laughs> the more I look at this Matthew character, the more I think about I think Nick nailed it, like, what, first episode or second episode. I almost think the guy's... He's like Rain Man or something, you know, he's got Asperger's or something. Just when you look at the character, I mean, those they're really good at math, really good at numbers, they're real simplistic. I mean, it's either it's black and white, so if they can't figure out these things, even his body movements sometimes kind of I mean, the way he kind of goes like this and stuff, kind of yeah, I'm just kind of curious if that's just character development or but I, mean, I don't think the Bible is worth that. So I mean, no, it's interesting that Nick brought that up and I think about it now that he brought that up every episode. I think this episode really, really nails it home for me. 
because his world's falling apart. You know, you hit you hit the nail on the head. For him, everything is black and white. It is or it isn't. And he he's seen this as miracle with this fish that just came out of nowhere and almost sunk a couple boats. And he just he can't he can't rationalize it, you know, to the point that he goes to talk to his mother. I, I believe that was his mother, who mm-hmm. he hasn't apparently talked to or been around in God knows how long. And he's like, well, what if things aren't as they seem? And she's basically like, you're a tax collector. I don't like you. But she, she obviously doesn't. She's, you know, she listens to him and she says that, like, you know, they always thought he'd be special since he was a kid. So they kind of highlighted that. But the point I'm trying to make is his, his world's falling apart. I mean, you, they show him trying to get dressed. Compare that to the very first episode they showed his house. You know, everything he was pulling out of the closet, putting everything on, everything was collected, da da da. And now it's like he's shuffling to the closet. He's putting his thing on. He's double checking himself. And yeah, yeah, he's just, everything's falling apart, which is, I think, indicative of, uh, I don't know if it's autism or spectrum or whatever it is, but whatever mental issue he's got, I mean, it's highlighted and shown in this episode. He's pushed to do things that he wouldn't characteristically do, like go back to his mom's or just these other behaviors. And we've seen it last time too. I mean, he's climbing up ladders and stuff. I mean, right to the point. I'm starting to see a theme in this show a little bit at the end of the wedding episode. Let's see. That girl says to Thomas, must be his wife. She said, for once in your life, don't think. And then Matthew is asking questions like, do you think impossible things can happen that overturn the laws of nature and things like that. So at times it sort of seems to be saying like, don't think. And I don't know if it's really saying like, shut your brain off, or if it's just saying we as humans tend to overthink and then we can get stuck. I don't like the idea of a blind faith necessarily since we know obviously they've got evidence because they're seeing Jesus do these things. So I'm I'm guessing the needle's more towards the middle. It's not a blind faith thing that the show's necessarily supporting. But are you guys feeling any tension with that theme, or how did you take it? I mean, I could see the overthink. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of with you, Nathan, in terms of more of in the middle. I think there's certain aspects and areas that the show does, and I think faith in and of itself requires some blindness to it or a lack of explanation. In, in detail, getting back to the opening scene with Moses, where, you know, he, he's talking about, I've learned not to question him. If I'm told to do something, I do it. And then transitioning that over to Matthew, where Nick and Jason have said his world's falling apart. He's gone back to his mother for basically like home base reset, help me get my head on straight because he can't figure it out. And it, it requires a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. of that questioning and also sometimes you got to go with it maybe my issue isn't so much like people saying i've learned not to question god or something like that you know because that can be a good thing if you're spiritually or theologically healthy right but somebody has like really warped theology and then they think god tells them to do something and they don't Ooh. question that's where they can go off the rails so like maybe it's not an issue in the right context it's only an issue if you're like spiritually way off the rails <laughs> isn't that where you get terrorist at yeah yeah exactly i think that's what the waco netflix thing is about <laughs> i'll put this out there this is a, a wild thought don't know what i think about it but when i was watching the first scene like as you mentioned and watching matthew here i thought did god really break the laws of physics because normally when i think about 
like creation of the universe from nothing, I would think about God, you know, breaking the laws of physics or intervening. But at one point I heard a debate about uh, whether or not God created the laws of nature and logic or whether or not they just exist as a result of God's existence. Like if God is the source of information, if you take that view, then some of the laws are a result, not something he made. So if you take that second view, is it possible that God didn't break the laws of physics? He like worked within them to do miracles and origin of the universe and stuff like that. It's just that my physics professor said, um, Haiduku, you guys probably had Mr. Haiduku. Yeah. He said, if you punch a wall like a trillion times, one of those times your arm will go through the wall and pass through the molecules. He said it's math. So is There's it space. possible? Yeah. yeah. I had this possible? exact conversation last week with a coworker. Really? I've had it every once in a while over the years. <laughs> Does that leave the door open for God doing miraculous things without breaking the laws of physics? If basically the laws of physics are part of God, they say he can't contradict himself. He can't break them. I don't know. I don't want to limit God, but it's an interesting idea to think maybe he like, I don't know, works within nature or intervened in a way that's not likely mathematical. But if you're struggling with that whole supernatural thing, does that bring any possible rationale to this kind of thing? So one, you say they say that God can't break the laws of physics. Who's they? Um, saying that. You mean can't go against guys. himself? Can't contradict mm-hmm. himself? Isn't that, isn't that idea of a miracle going against science or going against the laws of physics? And then two, sometimes I think when it looks at some religious people, even Moses says, I don't question it. I just do what he says. I think the whole epitome of religion is they don't question it. I mean, some of these discussions we have about why this does, why that is, I mean, academia, scholarship, those are actually enemies of religion because then we, we need people start why is this? Why is this? We start thinking, we start analyzing things. We start trying to figure stuff out. That's not what's intended to be in my mind. I think it's do what I say and that's how it is. And don't think about it. Oh, you think it's in- intended to be that way? You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, when you look at Moses and he makes things like where he says, you know, I don't question it. I just do what God says. I mean, doesn't that kind of, and if you look at most modern day churches, at least the more conservative ones, they don't want you questioning things. I mean, that's why they're anti-academic because academics want to question the hell out of everything. They don't want that questioning. I think you got to be careful, though, because keep keep in mind the people back in Moses' time who were questioning, right? This is the same guy who just saw Moses part the Red Sea. I didn't get that benefit. I didn't get to watch Moses part the Red Sea. I don't get to say, like, okay, I saw you do that yesterday. Show me today that this is real, right? I don't I don't get that benefit. So I think from a, and it's a little out of character for me to probably say this, but I think the way I believe it's set up is we, we have to believe that the stories and the, the narratives that were given have some semblance of truth to them. And then at a certain point in time, that's where the whole concept of faith comes into play, right? And using the Moses story as an example, do I believe that he parted the Red Sea? Man, I don't know. But what's the alternative? I, I, I don't know. What would they really do? They, well, they built a really big bridge and they walked across it. No. So I that's think- Good point. I, I think the the core of it is you just you listen to the stories and you you try and you know believe as much as you can, but at a certain point in time you have to take that leap. You have to take that faith and or, or take that leap of faith. Sorry, and unfortunately that's kind of blind. Is it right? I don't know, but unfortunately I think that's inherently how it works. 
I think that's the problem there. I think that leap of faith there, and even the Red Sea example you give, you know, the first time that's written down is not biblical. I mean, there's ancient religions predate Christian actually talk about being split. So, I mean, that's a story that's kind of Noah's Ark is actually a regurgitated story also. I mean, that's why I think I have a problem there. It's just kind of, you have to take a lot of these things on. What you think about faith, that's the same thing. This is how it is. Don't question it. Just believe it. I like that you bring that up because that's actually some of the reason that I was uncomfortable with if the show was saying don't question. And I, I was like, I hope they're not saying that because, I mean, for me, as, as a Christian who needs evidence or, or values evidence, I don't necessarily think we should be afraid of science or scholarly work or things like that. I think it's only dangerous if our position turns out wrong. So if a person is trying to find the truth, then maybe they won't be disappointed. They might not like what they find. Where people get into trouble is where they're not looking for the truth. They're trying to defend an idea that they like or a tradition. And then your thinking is biased. I'm apparently called a deconstructionist because I'm trying to trace traditions back to the origin to figure out if they reflect what they were meant to reflect early on, you know? I didn't know that till recently. But if you're forced into trying to defend a tradition, you're not looking for truth anymore. You're trying to keep your traditional idea together, which that can be dangerous because then your theology might not match reality, you know? It's actually a good point because researchers actually, whether it's religion or any field, they're aware of their biases and they actually try to overcome their biases. Mm-hmm. You just have to acknowledge that you have a bias to begin with. I have good. a good example from this episode. It's in the Nicodemus scene. So uh, I'll bring this up and then we can talk about this scene because this is the big crux of this episode. The, the scripture that's really controversial here is John chapter 3 because it says, Jesus says, you must be born of water and of spirit. And some churches take that to say, you have to be baptized or you're not saved. Well, I asked my pastor about it today. I already had this other theory that it's possible that water is a reference to Old Testament cleansing and not baptism. So that was the previous episode. And you remember when they're standing there before the Albert Dean or whatever his name is, and Nicodemus is talking, and he says, oh, their baptism isn't the same as what we do. I thought, oh, he's making the distinction. So this show knows Old Testament cleansing, and you know that verse doesn't necessarily mean immersion. Well, my pastor was like, couldn't that water just mean the water that happens during childbirth? I mean, there's water when someone's born. And so I'm like, oh, okay, there's three possible reasons here. So I'm sitting here in a class one day, taught by a pastor who I actually really, I respected this guy, still respect him, but I discovered something I disagreed on or just had a question about. He brought up this verse on Bible interpretation. He brought up that born of water and of spirit verse. So I asked him, I said, are you sure that's uh, talking about baptism? Because I don't know that Nicodemus at this point would know what that baptism is. I mean, modern baptism wasn't a thing yet. So is it possible he's talking about Old Testament cleansing? And like, I'm in a room full of people and like no one could really grasp what I was saying. They clung to the, this means you have to be immersed. And I don't think the early church was really doing that right at that point either. So it's the first time I started to see like an idea of tradition steering things, steering our interpretations instead of maybe 
what was actually in scripture. I point that out because that is the position that Nicodemus finds himself in. Like he's sitting there and he's got this tradition in his head and he's trying to break away from it to see what Jesus actually says about it. So I'm like, oh, that's awesome. (laughs) So the Nicodemus scene, what do you think? (laughs) Definitely a strong scene. Definitely one of the more emotional ones thus far. A lot of famous scripture lines quoted that I was like, ah, I've heard that one. Ooh, I know that one. So I felt really good on that front. Um, I thought it was, you know, interesting. There was the, I forgot the way the exact interaction goes, but Nicodemus is asking Jesus questions and Jesus is like, well, he basically says, you aren't understanding these earthly things I'm telling you. So how are you going to understand any heavenly things? Like, Tell me about what heaven's like. Well, dude, you're not even understanding what I'm telling you now. So, like, let's just put that on the back burner. So, I, I thought the whole thing was cool. And, and, and the, the way you see Nicodemus kind of, as it progresses, you know, just he's more and more and more hungry and curious. And till the, the end of the scene, he is literally on his knees. Like, the whole thing just brings him to his knees. It's, it's powerful, impressive to me. It's hard to watch in a way for me. It's just an emotional scene. In the beginning of the scene, he said, I asked for more lanterns, but they said it would draw us attention to us. Is that a reference I missed? I didn't think it was. I thought it was just dialogue, okay. but maybe it was. I don't know. Okay. I forget. Well, they, they're meeting in secret, so they didn't want to draw a lot of attention to themselves. Because, again, Nicodemus being high profile with Pharisees, meeting with this potential blasphemer, this like, heathen. It probably wouldn't have been a good look. So... I thought this scene was so powerful. I mean, I thought it was probably one of the more one of the most scenes that we've seen. A couple of things about Nicodemus. I kind of look at him as a true scholar. And I say that because I think a true scholar is actually always seeking for truth. They don't not definitive. So then he's actually out trying to figure out he's trying to access knowledge. He's trying to get knowledge. He's trying to, you know, a true scholar, their way of thinking actually is changes based on information that they have coming in. I think Nicodemus fits that to a E. I think he's you know, I mean, Jesus knows that he's not mainstream Pharisees. They know he's probably he's different. He's actually genuine. And I think it's just kind of, I think you look at this point here, you got someone who's very knowledgeable in the scriptures. I mean, the guy's in the scriptures. I mean, he probably knows it word for word with him and looking at it is, you know, kind of perplexed here by this whole Jesus character. And, you know, and he's just, I mean, he more or less realizes that's the son of God. I do notice one thing, if you notice, I think when it comes to Jewish scripture, a lot of their stuff is about the Jewish people's problems. It's always made away from somebody oppressing them. Rather, it's Rome or later on in modern day Christians. You see the Germans repress them. So I think a lot of that. So, you know, Jesus corrects him real quick. Yeah, we're not, I'm not saving you guys from Rome. You know, he's like, which if you look to series kind of puts that in play, which in a way it kind of bashes the Jewish population. I mean, does it not? I mean, their conception was Jesus is, you know, he's going to come and he's going to save us from Rome. They have just, save us in general but i think it's just kind of it was real emotional i think it was real um it made me think a little bit more about that i actually watched that scene believe it or not four times like if you rewind it back rewind it back it kind of was kind of analyzing it and so it was interesting i'm with jason too i i rewatched it a few times just because it, it was so interesting and there there were some intricacies there that it took me a couple times to pick up on one of the big things that i noticed was early on Nicodemus calls him rabbi, which I thought was pretty profound, given that, you know, Nicodemus's status with the Pharisees. And I think later on, he calls him the healer. There's several references there in terms of him being 
this point of authority and Nicodemus just getting on board and accepting that, wow, this is real. You're the Messiah. And how quickly he got from point A to point B, I I found kind of interesting as well. If you notice, Nicodemus also disobeyed, what's his name again? Quintus, the prefect. And we've seen through there where he's actually willing to do things to keep the Romans happy. And this time, Quintus at his house, he says, let me know about the meeting. Nicodemus just blatantly out, just ignored the guy. I mean, he had the secret meeting and he's like, I'm not telling Quintus crap. I mean, he's kind of... Well, and I think that gets back to your point, Jason, too, about him being a true scholar, where he doesn't care about any of that stuff. He, he's trying to get answers, and he has questions that truth is all that matters to him. I loved it, and I, I've been waiting for this scene for several episodes. I'm like, when is this conversation going to happen, you know? And it finally did. Yeah, it did not disappoint. And I liked what, Jason, what you said. I mean, he says he didn't come to save the people from Rome, but from spiritual death. I mean, I, th- I think it's cool that like the way he's thinking is on a totally different plane than everybody else. And that it takes them so long to get that. I mean, mm-hmm. none of the disciples have really clicked with that idea yet. You saw Andrew sitting there listening outside the door. Like, have you ever heard anything like this <laughs> before? You know, I mean, the other dude's like, shut up, I'm writing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's significant because those guys know the Old Testament. I mean, they know and they've got this idea in their heads probably about a Messiah and they think he's going to save them from Rome. And what does that mean? Like, oh, he's not going to save you from that? Like, what does that leave you with if you're yeah. them? Like, are you disappointed? How disappointed? Yeah, yeah. How disappointed are you? I think, that, uh, I think this dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, I think it's another thing is. I think he treats the disciples more like his children or his family, like he's educating them. I think mm-hmm. in the case of Nicodemus, he is educating them, but it's more of an academic debate. It's a like we're almost like we're on equal setting kind of discussion here. Yeah. And so he's yeah. got a little bit different approach where he's not come up with all these stories and all that type of stuff, other than the wind, which is actually a good good way he did there. But he's he's just treating Nicodemus differently. I mean, you got a person that's really intelligent, really aware of the scripture. You know, it's a totally different kind of that you have in there. So we see Jesus also ratchet it up, not just the common folk, but actually yeah. the Pharisees, you know, the educated people as well. What I loved about the end of that conversation too, is Nicodemus gets on his knees and Jesus is like, what are you doing? Like, you don't have to do that. It's that kind of response from Jesus. I mean, that's obviously something that they wrote into the show, but it really fits with the humility character. The idea that Jesus was really humble and he wasn't like the other leaders. That was probably the most moving part of that whole scene to me. Yeah. Again, I think it's kind of interesting when you look at the whole Rome thing. I know I'm kind of stuck on that now. Because I think a lot of the Jewish holidays and stuff were about coming out of repression from somebody pressing them. So then here, that's not really the case. And so a lot of you guys are wrong too. Not just the Christians are wrong. Jews are wrong too on some other their views on the scripture yeah that's interesting i mean if you think about it wait i don't want to say this on air <laughs> too, too controversial well i was just thinking about christians who who think god's going to make america into this perfect place i mean you can relate that whole rome idea to that like i don't know that that's jesus's end game you know i don't believe that it is and so we have to learn how to live within the circumstances that exist here for us. So I think that's still relevant. 
about that time. So I wanted to ask Nick, what are your final thoughts? I think you, you kind of led into it perfectly there. Is this episode finally better than Jesus in the field with kids for you guys? <laughs> you guys finally enjoying something better than that? No, uh, this, this, this is definitely one of my favorites thus far. Um, you know, we, between in the beginning, the interaction with Jesus and Mary Magdalene, where she was kind of apologetic or whatnot. And Jesus is like, no, nah, you, you have anything to apologize for. It's, it's all good. I'm all the way to Nicodemus and then Jesus having this heart to heart and that being uh, the best way I, I, I was thinking about this in my mind when you're describing it, Jesus plays up to his competition, right? So what I mean by that is if, if Jesus is talking to common folk, he's going to bring it down to common folk language. If he's talking to the academic, he's going to bring it up and talk to the academic. And I, I thought that was, that was pretty cool. And then, you know, the, the little cutaway, the little um, movie making tactic to see the two guys in the hallway hiding and, and like deeply entrenched, like it just kind of, you know, put more stock into that moment of like, have you heard this before? No. And then the other dude's literally like, shut up. I'm writing. I, I think we're witnessing a book of the Bible being written right there. I didn't but, catch uh, that he was writing. Wow. Yeah. He's definitely writing. Yeah. Um, so, so this is awesome. You know, I, I hate that the first season's almost over because I'm there's there's so much more. But hey, we got another season. So, I overall I enjoyed this one. And answer Nick's question there. Yeah, this series actually of all the ones we've watched so far, this one's a little bit more in my mind, a little bit more academic, stimulating than the rest of them. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen. Well, until next time. Don't yeah, forget to mail yeah. the beer. Right. Take care, guys. You hey, too, man. Later, Nick. All right. What about you guys? So with Matthew, don't you think that I'm almost, I think, I almost think that Jesus picks the apostles based on what they can provide. So then I think there's a utilitarian kind of purpose there with Matthew. Matthew brings money. I always kind of think about that. I read a couple of things about that years ago. So where all the apostles kind of have their, he's picking them for a reason. I mean, you look at Simon, he's a protector. I mean, Simon does it. Andrew, he's got street smarts as well. And so then Jesus can navigate some of these areas that he might not be able to navigate without them. And so I think all of them bring something to the table. Again, again, Matthew, I think, brings wealth to the table. I completely agree with you that each of the disciples are chosen for a different attribute or a different talent that they have, uh, something unique to them that they can contribute. With Matthew, I kind of see it more in terms of his attention to detail his ability to make accounts of what he sees, what he witnesses. And I think that gets back to one of the previous episodes where what he does for Quintus in describing in detail, <laughs> excruciating detail, even what he witnessed with the boats and the fish and how Simon was able to pay his debt. I definitely enjoyed this. And, and one of the things I, I think I've kind of turned a corner on in particular was the actor in particular that plays Nicodemus. This episode versus episode one. Episode one, I was like, oh, he's terrible. Like some of the worst acting I've ever seen. And this episode, I was like, I bought it. Totally bought it. I thought he sold it. Really just kind of dove headfirst into his character. And it, it made me like Nicodemus <laughs> as a character in this in this story. So I kind of agree with you on John, when the actor plays Nicodemus, I've seen him in other stuff before. He's probably the only, I would say, credible actor in the whole series. I kind of thought, like, this guy's kind of half-assing it. He, I've seen yeah. other stuff. I, I think that scene between Nicodemus and Jesus there, I think that was, that's some good acting there. I mean, that was just, 
I could feel the emotion. I could kind of feel it coming out of that. I think that's what you wanted to uh, kind of there. So I think that's kind of plus I already this character of Jesus they use in this is totally different than any character of Jesus I've seen in anything. So it's just the way he jokes around, the way he's pleasant, the way he's like just a common guy. You, you just don't see him kind of I don't think that a lot of these, you know, Christian shows or even bigger ones like Passion of Christ are looking for that type of actor or that type of portrayal of Jesus where it's so different than anything else that you see. I think the actor does a really good job at actually doing that. Agreed. And again, this has gone from something that, you know, episode one, I, I kind of just had this thought in the back of my head of like, what did I get myself into to, I look forward to seeing this. I, I'm really enjoying it. And, you know, I, I think as the episodes progress, they, they keep getting better. I do too, man. I am actually going to watch this episode again soon after recording. So I think that's, I don't know. I just wanted to see it again. We were on a little bit of a shorter schedule this week, so I, I didn't get to watch it without just for enjoyment as much as I usually do. I usually watch it once. So just enjoy it. Don't take notes. And then I start taking notes. But this time I had the pencil and paper in front of me the whole time. And I'm like, I got to watch this again without having to do the notes because I just want to soak it in. It's just really well done. That John 3 chapter, that, you know, contains John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That is like the most recited Bible verse ever. The rest, yeah, yeah, to to the point where like you forget the rest of that chapter. It has some unbelievable stuff in it. And um, it was just really cool to see it on screen like this and well done. Well, we didn't mention too much about the end here. We've got Matthew in his tax booth. And one of my favorite parts was when uh, Matthew says to Gaius, he said, it must be nice to live in a world so ordered, which is interesting because like that's the thinking that Matthew is coming from. And then Gaius goes, we live in the same world, Matthew. <laughs> but now there's two people and they see the same world completely different. So I, I think that's, Really interesting. Then we find out Matthew's going to be the host of the dinner that the disciples are going to. Surprise! So I am very interested to see the next episode because I want to see, like, obviously these guys don't like that Matthew was picked. I mean, Simon's got problems with it. Andrew's got problems with it. I want to see that played out. I see it kind of like the first Avengers movie, the teams together, but they're dysfunctional. So if you took Avengers and you put like a supervisor over over them, that's what you would get. So I'm I'm wanting to see like, well, how's Jesus going to guide them? How's he going to mentor them through this? Because I mean, they were ready to fight last episode. You notice when I was looking, I was thinking earlier. He says Jesus says we're going to have a dinner party even before he talks to Matthew. Tells was it Simon and he goes, it's the big house there on the left in this neighborhood. So he's like, do you know what kind of people live over there? And so in my mind, I'm thinking, he's thinking that's that's the rich part of town. But then when you get to the end, that's Matthew's house because he says, he reports that yeah. we're never having a dinner party at your house. And so then I'm like, well, okay. So I was like, wow, okay. That was kind of interesting because I kind of thought before it was the rich part and then it kind of, and also now we see Matthew's house to see how he lives. He lives in the richer part. Well, and interesting. Well, he also had all that food and everything there that he was able to host all those people like that without... Yeah. having to go to market or purchase anything like the the other thing I thought was interesting about that closing scene uh you know we talk about the dynamic between Matthew and Gaius 
you know, Gaius showing up and trying to persuade a little bit there. That character can't be going away. I mean, no. this can't be the end of Gaius. He, well, one, he's too good of a character, but two, just the fact that he was still around earlier when he didn't have to be, there's got to be more to him in the future. And doesn't that I kind hope. of, I look at that, I see Gaius saying that to Matthew. I don't see Gaius saying it as a Roman. I see that Gaius saying that to his friend, Matthew, like, don't throw away all you've done because he, he makes a reference that you're doing pretty well. You know, you live in a nice house, you're rich, you're doing better, all this. And so I'm thinking he's trying to give him some advice. Like, don't do it, Matthew. You're going to throw away the life that you have. You know, you're doing well for yourself. So I kind of, that's why I got all that. He said, no Jew lives as good as you. Yeah. It's like, he must have been in real psychological distress to throw all that stuff away. I mean, he is, he doesn't have everything. He is estranged from his family. So he is lacking in something significant. He said something in the beginning to the effect of, um, what was it? Like, when you realize that no one in the world cares about you, you look out only for yourself or something like that. Yeah. Isn't that kind of interesting, though? You see modern day times, I mean, a lot of us think, I mean, I, you know, I think I think if I had extra million dollars laying around, I'd probably be a, real nice. But even with some of these famous people, you see that they have wealth and they have all these nice things, but they still struggle mentally and emotionally and they're, they're lonely like we are. They don't have a loved one. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think Matthew kind of falls into that kind of category there. I mean, he, like I said, obviously wealthy, everything he needs. I mean, he has 800 pairs of sandals there. I mean, he's not really worried about money or anything, but he's still, I mean, he's a lonely guy. He has nobody. I mean, his only friend is the dang Roman there. I mean, the dog. The, and the dog. I mean, yeah, the dog and the Roman is only, his only friend. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you kind of got to feel sorry for the guy a little bit. I do too. So it sounds like we're all looking forward to the season finale. At what point in the show did you get hooked? About what episode? It piqued my interest, I'd say, probably around four. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just kind of intensified since then, I think. I'm not sure. What, what was the one with the kids? That was four, wasn't it? Three. Three. I think around that ballpark there. The first couple, I was thinking, oh, okay, I don't know. I was like, what the hell did I let Nathan get me into? Damn it. So <laughs> exactly. I, was like, I was like, how many more of these do we have, dude? I was like, I'm committed for this. And so then I think for me, I was looking at it is do I really want to watch another just typical biblical story. I've seen them. But then you got like about three or four areas. So to get a little bit more, where I was like, oh, OK, I got some questions here. You know, if I'm having to pause things and Google stuff or look things up, then it's going to or if I have to start rewatching scenes, that comes becomes kind of more a little bit more interesting. I thought this one we just watched for me was a lot more um mentally stimulating for me than any, any of the rest of them, I think. And so I think that's kind of stuff like the snake thing I had no idea about. It seems like the show does a really good job at And I wonder if some of these diehard people who go to church every Sunday are even aware of some of these. I think the show wants you to look this stuff up. I think they want to stimulate your brain. They don't just want to give you a, a regular old biblical story that we've seen. Everybody knows the story. Even atheists know what's going to happen. I think they're trying to do a little bit more than, than that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like they're challenging common ideas in a healthy way, like in a way that's supposed to help people. You know, if if they're struggling in their church life or something, it can help them maybe get back on track, see more like what Jesus was doing, what, what a church is founded on, things like that. For me, like, I just look up stuff constantly. <laughs> I'm like, I probably looked more stuff up for this episode than any other episode which I apologize for that. I'm like, hey, guys, listen to all this crazy stuff I found. 
No, it's it's interesting. I'm glad you share it. It um, I, I guess when we started this, I kind of thought it might be something that could kind of be like maybe playing in the background, you know, something that you could possibly fall asleep to or, or something like that. And Is anymore, it's like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It, anymore, I'm kind of like, I look forward to it, but I'm also not looking forward to it just because I know that like my attention is going to be a hundred percent involved in this. And when I sit down and like watch it, I'm actually like engaged with it. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not something that like I put on and I'm doing dishes or sending emails and it's just like said, background noise, which I think is a sign of a good show. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, I've actually even recommended some of my more conservative friends. Yeah. The ones that are, I'm just kind of interested to see if they're watching what their feedback is on. I'm pretty sure some of them are going to have a negative reaction based on that goes against some of their beliefs. I kind of want to have that discussion, I guess. <laughs> and so that's kind of why I'm kind of recommending it to them. And so it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. I do agree with John, though. I mean, it's, I have a habit of like checking my emails, looking at my phone, doing all kinds of stuff while I'm watching TV. Somehow I tend to keep up with the shows. And this here, I know it's, don't pay attention to miss some little thing. Need to kind of. Same here. And so I've actually even put it where it has the, the captions that way I can. I'm not missing anything. Mm-hmm. So it's, and I'll even rewind something back. Like, okay, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. I didn't hear that. So it's more or less got my undivided attention when I watch it. I usually get myself a drink, sit down on the couch, boom, and I'm yeah. fully focused on it, on that. My church is watching this too. Like a lot of them were watching it before I was. And I know they're just eating it up. I, I go to Asbury Church and I know they were like, ready for something like this, you know, like it's not bothering them. And if it's challenging them, it's in a good way. I'd, I'd be curious to see how some other churches in town are taking it if they've seen it. So I don't know. I might look around and just see if I've got some opinions for the last episode or something. Cause I'd be curious. So I know the last episode and the first episode of season two, from what I know is in them might be a little bit emotional to watch. I'm both looking forward to it, and I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> so, it'll be good. You guys ever watch that Passion of the Christ? I saw it in high school. I haven't I seen remember, it since. I used to think to myself, Mel Gibson was a genius, because, I mean, you got churches on Sundays after church, like, renting out whole theaters. They're going in there, and I'm thinking, man, this place is making money off of this. And I remember this one church invited me, and I went, it was a Baptist church, and I mean, you already got these like really diehard, and they're, uh, and they're crying and stuff, they're bawling. I'm thinking, I'm looking around like, what in the heck? I'm, I'm just, it was just kind of, kind of interesting. And so I'm not sure where I'm going with this conversation. But it was, uh, you just don't see churches watch shows at that level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know why they don't watch things like The Chosen. I mean, but I think even beyond that, Nathan, you, you and I grew up same town. You remember where I lived? It wasn't too far from. Uh, major movie theater there i remember when that movie came out there were lines wrapped around the theater and it's, it's a big building people waiting hours to get in to see that that film when it came out i've ran theaters before too uh, i did that for a while but um i i've never seen that level of crowds at least in that area ever before or ever since i almost think they wanted to see a good portrayal of Jesus. I think the passion, you know, did a good job on that subject, but there's so much more to tell, like so many more stories. I think that's why people have embraced the chosen, but it looks like to me, when I looked online, that's for season one came out in like 
2017 or something. Word of mouth took quite a while for that thing to get going. But I think people are really taking to it. And I'm glad for a number of reasons. I think it's helpful. If if I knew somebody who had not been to church and they were spiritually curious, I'd almost watch that show with them or give them the DVD before inviting them to church. Because I think this show is going to give them a good idea of who Jesus is in a way that is, you know, entertaining too. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that the show it continues to build and be successful so that they can finish what they want to do. You know, they, they want to do quite a few seasons to finish the whole story. And I would like to see that happen. I'd hate to see them like get halfway and be like, oh, we got to skip to the end because of budgetary reasons. Like it's good enough that I hope they keep the quality of what they're doing and can finish out their vision. I still like the way that Jesus is portrayed and chosen, though. I mean, even the Passion of the Christ. I mean, Jesus there, I mean, actor, which is a, a well-known actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, he still played the, the typical role of Jesus. I mean, more of the strict teacher, philosophical, a little bit of stoic. Really wasn't someone that you would probably want to grab a beer with. I mean, you look at, the again, the portrayal of Jesus chosen is totally different than any yeah. of the other ones. You see more as off his pedestal, down equal with us instead of on his mm-hmm. pedestal, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. And, Yep, I love it. And I think that's accurate from what I understand, too. So I'm pretty happy with it. Well, thank you guys for watching with us and listening. And uh, yeah, if you've got any questions, comments, shoot us a message. We're on Facebook at uh, Church in a Brewery on Facebook or on Instagram. We're under Brewery Ministries, YouTube under Brewery Ministries. Send us a message, any comments or anything. And we will see you two weeks for the last episode of season one. See you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening to Church and a Brewery's review of the Chosen series. If you enjoyed this podcast, help spread the word by leaving a five-star review in the Apple Podcast Store, Stitcher, or your podcast store of choice. That's why they call me Whiteheads, because of what I do to your liver. You can contact the hosts or Church in a Brewery through the Church in a Brewery Facebook page, the Brewery Ministries Instagram page, or through our website, breweryministries.org. Send us your questions, fun comments, whatever you want. It's not enough to say hello. If you're in the Wichita, Kansas area and you want to talk about spiritual things over a craft beer, check out Church in a Brewery. We meet every Monday night inside Augustino Brewing at 7.30 p.m. But those who do the actual fishing are unholy, foul-mouthed, given to gambling and secret dens, and even fishing on Shabbat. The opinions shared in this podcast are the views of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Brewery Ministries Incorporated. Why must I perform? First I perform for Quintus. You taught God's law. Soldiers, then for for the slum dwellers. And this, what, what sort of performance is this? All music and sound clips included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They're included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Fear not. 
for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. 